Whenever I see a children's Bible that I haven't seen before, I like to put it to the test. And the test is this, to see how the story of Jonah is told. It's easy to find in most picture book versions of the Bible for children. Rarely does the story of Jonah get left out because it's full of imagination. This is a fiction story that we find in our scriptures. And it is a fiction story that we tell to our children that tells us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. So I like to see how the story of Jonah is told in these picture books. It's always interesting to see how the fish is drawn, whether it's a, a little whale. Well, is there such a thing as a little whale? Whether it's a whale with a smiley face or maybe some type of fish that looks a little more mean. Maybe it has teeth. But that's not the point of the test. I'm looking to see where the story ends and how it is that Jonah is described in the end of it. Usually the story of Jonah ends with the people of Nineveh hearing the word of God and repenting, and that's it. But I saw in one children's Bible, which I said to the person with me, don't buy that one, Jonah was in a hammock at the end, smiling. And that is not in the Bible. You heard it read. We picked up right as the people of Nineveh have heard the word of the Lord and repented, and Jonah is angry, furious, angry enough that he wishes he would die. That is really, really angry. He's mad because he didn't think these people were worth saving to begin with, and God did. He had to go through all of that effort. He tried to get away. He tried to go to the opposite space. He went to Tarshish instead of Nineveh because he didn't want to have to go through the effort of saving people he didn't think were worth saving and knowing God would save them in the end. So he is furious. I don't know that we have any words to describe his anger, except for that description, he was angry enough to die. The phrase that we hear in this Bible story, where Jonah says, God, I know that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent in punishing. That phrase is repeated throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. At least seven different times it is found in the Hebrew Scriptures, not only in this fiction story, but in the Psalms, a version of which we read today. It's in another Psalm as well and in some of the writings of the prophets. Because of the varied places that this phrase is found, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent in punishing, because of the variety of places that this, these words are found, biblical scholars believe that it was something that was said in worship about God. That God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent in punishing. Jonah knew this about God, and in the end, God saved the people of Nineveh, and it made him angry. Our gospel story today brings us to the same conclusion, faced with the generosity of God. And anger is the same feeling. 
I love how this parable is told because we are open at the very beginning to hearing it. Standing out in the marketplace, waiting for someone to come and hire a a steward, a manager of a vineyard comes and hires the first people he sees and sends them into the work, into into the place to work for what is a good pay, the usual daily wage. This would be what would be expected. And so we open ourselves up right there at the beginning of the story to hear it. And as it progresses, we see that each person gets hired, even up till the last hour of the workday. And so we, as we hear how they're paid, can relate to those first hirees, those first employees of that day. And we recognize that feeling that they have, that it isn't fair that those first people that got started and worked through the scorching heat and worked all those hours get paid the same amount as the people who were there for only one hour. And we're also angry. Angry enough to die? Maybe at times. But definitely angry. Perhaps we wish sometimes that God was fair and not generous. Maybe you thought that sometimes that you wish God was fair. But I warn you about that desire. Fairness might not always play out as you had hoped. Maybe you remember the first time that someone informed you that life isn't fair. You probably remember your anger. You were probably in your early single digits of life. And you may have been angry enough to die if that was a concept that you could conceive of. Angry, I'm sure you were. Especially that the person was so confident in their point. Life is not fair. I know that this has happened, of course, in our lives as parents. We've heard it from our children. That's not fair. Sometimes I like to give my kids then an example of what fair could look like. One example that comes to my mind, and I'm not sure if this is one that just I'm remembering as a point of illustration for the homily or if it was one that really lived out in our house. But we have a rule that you cannot watch a PG-13 movie until you're 11 years old. Now that seems pretty generous because you're not even 13, you're 11. And you get permission to watch PG-13 movies at 11 years old. Well, say the older sibling wants to go out to see the movie that's just now being released and much anticipated, and it is a PG-13 movie. And the younger sibling, who's almost 11, says, Oh, I want to go too. I want to go too. I read the book also. Please, can I go? Please. I say, No. You're not 11 yet. But I'm almost 11. I said, You can wait till it comes out on DVD. It'll be released, and you'll be definitely 11 by then, and then you can watch it at home. No, but I want to go to the movies. But you're not 11. That's not fair. Oh, well, we could make it fair. And I could tell your older sibling they can't go watch the movie, and you can't either, ever, neither one of you. And that would be fair. You might guess that that's really not the option that the person wants to hear. And it usually does not make them happy in sitting in a hammock. They're usually angry. So perhaps fairness is really not what we want from God. I can tell you, I don't know what any of you have done, but if I were to hear you pray to God to be fair. If I were to overhear you pray that God would be fair, I would immediately start praying that God would not listen to you. (laughs) I would cry out for mercy. 
I would say this person's only remembering what they did right. And that's what they're basing it on. But I'm sure that they've benefited from your mercy before. And if you're fair, they're going to feel that. The first will be last. Yes, thank God that God is not fair. God is generous. And sometimes that makes us angry. This passage has often been interpreted as fighting for economic justice. And perhaps when we pray or want to pray that God would be fair, really what we long for is God's justice to be at work. We want people to get what is due. We want it to come out right. Maybe that's really our prayer. And God promises that God is a just God. It may not always happen on the calendar, the schedule, the pace that we want, but God is just, and justice will be done. But we are left to wonder then, what do we do with the generosity of God? And people who have interpreted this gospel lesson, this parable, as calling us to fight for economic equality, that's been their interpretation of this. And it's not a false interpretation. I think it honors the truth of the generosity of God to fight for economic justice. This is the passage of scripture that Dorothy Day referred to in her work in the Catholic Workers Movement as she worked to help the poor and the homeless. And then she also advocated for living wages for those that did work. And I think she was right in using this gospel story, this parable, in that way. It's not an abuse of the parable. But if we limit it to only economic justice, we limit the power of the story, which is about God's generosity, that God is generous. Sometimes we benefit from that in ways that we did not imagine. And often, when we come to think about it, we realize how it is that we have been the beneficiaries of God's generosity, that we really didn't earn everything we have. We really didn't. God and God's generosity has given it to us. We may have seen a correlation between our efforts and what came back to us, and though, so we have deduced that it was our efforts that generated that return. But that's not the whole story. Each of us has received things that we did not earn. And some of that has generated other things for us. When we first moved here into the rectory, I said to the kids, look, we just get to live here. This is an amazing house, and we get to live here. It has nothing to do with how hard I work or what kind of degree I have, because I know a lot of other clergy that work just as hard as I do, and a lot of other clergy that have the same degree as I do, and maybe some of the same accomplishments, and they don't live in a house like this. We get to. And so we are going to receive the generosity of this circumstance and enjoy it and take care of it because one day we won't live in this house and that'll be okay too. Each of us has benefited from the generosity of God and we are fools if we forget it. So the question that our gospel asks us today that we are challenged to consider in the power of this parable is what do we do with the generosity of God? 
How are we generous with God's generosity? Dorothy Day found a way to be generous with God's generosity in the Catholic worker movement. How are each of us being generous with God's generosity? That's the question I leave you with. In the name of the one holy and living God. Amen.